Welcome to Ascension Development, the podcast. Greetings and welcome once again to the Ascension Developments Podcast. My name is George Dvorsky, and I'll be your host for the next hour or so. I'm a blogger at ascensiondevelopments.com, and I'm a chair of the board at the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. The Ascension Developments Podcast deals with such topics as science, technology, futurism, and transhumanism. Wow, it has been an incredible week, two weeks for me. And basically, all of the goings-on in my life are going to be essentially the content for this podcast. Specifically, just returned from the Moral Brain Conference in New York City at NYU. It was outstanding. I'm going to share all of the details with you. Also, my Dyson Shell article, How to Build a Dyson Sphere in 5 Relatively Easy Steps, is getting attention far and wide and going to address some of the reaction to it and some of my thoughts about it, including um, make mention of a uh, letter that I got from NASA about it, if you can believe it. And then, of course, there was Al Jazeera. I was on Al Jazeera about a week or so ago, along with Robin Hansen and Ari Shulman. And I'm going to play the uh, the clip from the episode, in case you missed it, in its entirety, and then I'm going to address some of the things that I, how I felt about it and some uh, even ways I can do some rebuttals on some of the things that were said about it. So it's going to be a great show. Very exciting times for me. But before we get into it, let's listen to some music. And when we get back, I'm going to talk about the Moral Brain Conference. So I recently returned from New York City, where I attended the NYU 2012 Bioethics Conference, 
this year's theme being The Moral Brain. It was organized by the NYU Center for Bioethics in collaboration with the Duke Kennan Institute and uh, us at the Ethics for the, the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. And this was a very special conference, very specialized conference, in that it took a multidisciplinal uh, look and, and approach to the issue of morality as it pertains to cognitive function and the question of whether or not our moral sense could ever be enhanced at the biological level. And in the event, it brought together an incredible number of spe uh, speakers and thinkers, academic leaders, including neuroscientists, bioethicists, and philosophers. And I have to say, this conference featured one of the strongest itinerary of speakers I have seen in quite some time. And if you want to have an access to the complete list of speakers, I wish there were many, just hit my uh, my website and you'll see it there. Or just Google Moral Brain Conference at NYU and you'll see it there. So, um, yeah, I left very early on uh, the Friday and I drove down to uh, to New York City. Um, something's funny, driving in from Toronto, uh, you feel that New York is so far away. And it is, it is pretty far, but what I will say, I left early enough on the Friday morning such that I was literally in my seat in the uh, auditorium at 2.15 in the afternoon. Uh, the conference, had, I maybe missed one talk and we were underway, so that was incredible. It makes New York seem not so far away anymore. And then for the next three days, really, it was pretty intense. For those of you who have gone to conferences, they, they can be pretty exhausting, um, but very stimulating at the same time. You definitely feel your mind expanding and you become very stimulated by what you're hearing, very energized by it. But it can be exhausting. The, the, you're, you're, it's fine. mentally exhausting, yes, but certainly not physically exhausting. If anything, sitting down for these extended periods of time can be a problem. But, um, the first, um, the first day, the, um, the first half of the conference really was dedicated to the neuroscientific aspect. And then in the back half of the conference, that's where we took over as the bioethicists and the philosophers and we addressed the question of modification and enhancement. So it, can, it was pretty funny when I first got into the uh, the conference there, uh, just after two on the Friday. Uh, suddenly, I felt like my God, like I'm a bit out of, out of my league here because they, it was basically neuroscientist after neuroscientist, and they had all their acronyms and all their specialized language for what they were talking about. They were going on and gone on about OFCs and VMPFCs and olfactory this and orbitofrontal orbitofrontal cortex that. But what was really interesting is that the more you listened to this and the more you paid attention. Uh, you could actually start to pick it up and start to get a sense as to what kinds of um, uh, cognitive activity was happening at what parts of the, in the brain. And, uh, of course, what was interesting to us as, as conference attendees at this particular conference was how um, how the brain is, is quite responsible, how the mind works in terms of our uh, the moralizing we do, uh, which is uh, interesting to show that our moral sense, our empathetic or altruistic sense, our ability to connect with each other, it's it does have a cognitive basis it's not just cultural and that's what's very uh, interesting so based on those kinds of uh determinations then we could in the second half of the conference talk about okay how do we actually go in and tweak those things and modify those things and maybe steer them in, in desirable directions to make us better human beings maybe make us kinder gentler um maybe more engaged with each other uh and and even even with ourselves which was a big takeaway from for me and I'll get to that in, in just a little bit so yeah, it was fascinating to take part in this conversation and see exactly how moral sentiment can be so indelibly tied into brain function. But one thing I did notice, however, is that the neuroscientists tend to get a little excited about their fMRIs, which stands for functional magnetic resonance imaging. And if you've ever seen like a picture of a brain scan uh, with areas uh, highlighted and color coded uh, in a color color coded way, you'll know what I'm talking about. It basically shows an fMRI does 
what parts of the brain are responsible for certain cognitive functions. So you'd have a typical presentation where you'd have uh, a, a, a neuroscientist showcasing his work. And uh, he'd come up with, let's like, say, a challenge in moral decision-making. Let's say something like the trolley problem where you have to decide whether you're obligated to save somebody or not given a cer certain uh, scenario. So he would then uh, come up with this moral challenge and put a person in an fMRI and make them think about that challenge to get them to work those parts of the brains that they're curious to be studying. And they want to see what parts of the brains are lighting up. And then when the results are in, they make their fancy screen grabs and put it in their PowerPoint presentations, and then they point at their power, their, at their screen grabs, um, with their laser pointers to show us where the action is happening in the brain. And after a, a while of listening to the neuroscientists, I started to, you know, look, I, I completely understand the importance of showing that there's a cognitive basis for a specific brain function. I do get that. At the same time, however, there seemed to be an absence or a deficit of understanding from a co computational or a cognitive perspective. So very much absent from the conversation were, were potential insights from cognitive scientists. I think that there's right now a bit of a uh, lack of communication happening between neuroscience and cognitive science. The neuroscientists obviously more biological, more looking at how the brain functions and brain state and what the brain is actually responsible for, whereas the cognitive scientists maybe tend more toward, I'd think, the computational aspect, the uh, algorithmic aspect. And I do believe that both camps need to talk to each other. It's pretty obvious that uh, one is very dependent on the other. So that's one thing that I think could have stand a bit of improvement. So the emphasis, therefore, from a neuroscientific perspective, uh, the emphasis was on data collection and articulating function, and less so on explanation. And this is not necessarily a bad thing because you need to have the data uh, and the, all those sorts of kinds of... Uh, uh, ways of articulating function to exist in order to fuel the latter. And what's encouraging as well is that philosophy is actually getting in on the action as well, something that's traditionally not been known or considered something that could actually help in this kind of discourse. And it's the, the burgeoning field of what's called experimental philosophy. And there were a number of experimental philosophers there. In a way, it's almost like um, philosophy meets sociology meets you know pure science. So what it really does mean, though, is that old-school armchair philosophizing has largely been trumped by doing actual science. And they were very wary, a lot of these uh, speakers and thinkers there, of being even on the defensive, like, look, this is not armchair philosophizing. I'm actually, you know, doing, doing actually field work. I'm, doing, I'm bringing, bringing in the data. I've got my data sets. I've got, you know, the empirical approach that I'm putting into it. And, uh, uh, you know, of course, when it comes to, let's say, coming up with a, with a, with a, a hypothesis for you know, function or what have you, they're definitely trying to avoid sounding like that armchair philosopher. So that's really interesting. And uh, a, a good uh, takeaway from uh, the conference in terms of the, the state of philosophy today. So the big question, so is there a moral brain to be modified? And interesting, in, interestingly, at the same time, you know, you've got this armchair philosophy on the way out. There was still a lot of talk of things like Aristotelian virtue ethics, Kantian deontology, Millsian utilitarianism and consequentialism and so much and so and, and so on. These things were still very much in vogue. And I think that the, there's a challenge here for experimental philosophers and neuroscientists to basically correlate those traditional ethical frameworks with actual cognitive function, which is actually probably impossible, but more plausibly decide which of these various ethical frameworks can provide the best roadmap for enhancement. So do you, are you, should be, a, should you be a consequentialist or should you be a, a virtue ethicist and so on when it comes to us determining, okay, what is a virtuous behavior or what is a moral action and so on. 
But a general consensus that did emerge from the conference was the idea that morality as a specific brain function could not be defined. So take the speaker and thinker Walter Sinnott Armstrong. He noted that we need to study the various components of morality separately as it's not a united, cohesive thing. There's no brain mechanism that's both common to all moral judgments of wrongs and also distinctive of moral judgments of wrongs. Instead, morality, as broken down into different components, is more properly understood as a dyadic relationship. Interestingly, Sinnott Armstrong's argument strengthens the case for consequentialism. Now, there's also the exosomatic aspect of morality, the cultural aspect that needs to be considered. And Jonathan Haidt, he noted in his talk, quote, Moral systems are interlocking sets of values, virtues, practices, identities, institutions, technologies, and evolved psychological mechanisms that work together to suppress or regulate self-interest and make cooperative societies possible. So in other words, it's not all in the brain. Morality is not all in the brain, and not by a long shot. It's part of a, of a larger subset of factors. And other presenters made similar cases, including uh, Wendell Wallach and John Shook, Wendell Wallach of Moral Machines fame, and John Shook of the Center for uh, Free Inquiry. Uh, Wallach noted that we risk pathologizing human nature, and that there is no moral compass in the brain to be modified. And Shook, he took a normative perspective on the matter and, and noted that Newer ethics will always be on its way to some newer ethics, and that for every moral person, there is a specific moral brain in action, which actually also made me realize that aside from the sociocultural differences, that there's going to be gender differences that account for differences in moralizing. It's no secret that testosterone impacts on male aggression and risk-taking, which, if applied as an intervention, could be seen as a kind of a moral or virtue unenhancement. And I'd have certainly liked to have seen more consideration given to gender differences in moral decision-making and the various ways we could offset these traits among the two genders. And uh, this is kind of what I've been referring to as post-genderism, which is this idea of trading off characteristics and traits, gender traits to each other such that we uh, can have the best of both worlds and we don't necessarily need to think of ourselves as, um, as polarized in terms of uh, our gendered traits. Now, moreover, it was obvious to me even before the conference started, that moral enhancement cannot really be parsed out from cognitive enhancement. And because we're essentially talking about altering normal human brain functioning, and because our considerations are based on normative perceptions of moral or virtuous behavior, we're still essentially just talking about cognitive modifications. At best, we can isolate certain behaviors or tendencies and seek to strengthen them through interventions. So what do we mean by that? Well, okay, back in the early days of the ancient Greeks, uh, a virtue, a very important virtue, was courage. It was considered a very part, 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 important part of your character. But these days, we don't talk about courage so much. We don't really care about it as a very important virtue or moral trait. And I think similarly, similarly, that I can only assume that in the future, we will also develop a different sense of virtuous behaviors compared to today's. So I'm going to take another example of blurred lines when it comes to what we think is a moral act. Uh, let's take the issue of strong executive control in decision-making, in other words, or a strong sense of, of will, will or willpower. It was generally agreed that in order for an effective moral enhancement regime to work, or, or, uh, that strong will had to be an integral part of it. But is executive control a cognitive enhancement or a moral enhancement, or could it be considered both? And on a somewhat similar, similar note, James Hughes of the IEET, his notion of virtue enhancement carried a lot of currency at Moral Brain, both in terms of its efficacy and its potential for controversy. By suppressing vice, argued Hughes, we can enhance virtue. So he believes that it's moral and enhancement that will make us more responsible. 
And he contended that while we should suppress immoral sentiments, we need to reinforce reasonable sentiments, including the retention of our capacity for what he called discriminating wisdom. That said, Hughes admitted that moral enhancement could cause risks to things like cognitive liberty uh, through lack of privacy, uh, overt control, ownership, norms, addiction, and inequality. And Hughes's notion of discriminating wisdom was very well taken. Uh, take uh, Anna Pakulchik, who noted that anger and outrage can be very useful things. So determining pro-social traits can be tricky. Maybe it's not such a bad thing to eliminate things like anger um, and outrage and even a, a desire for self-preservation and to protect oneself. Uh, the jury is still out, let's say, on the efficacy of um, uh, the elimination of those particular traits, for example. And yes, what we're talking about really are unintended consequences. So there are some unintuitive side effects that come up uh, when you talk about moral enhancement. So let's take oxytocin, for example. Oxytocin is uh, that that poster molecule, if you will, for moral enhancement. It uh, is well known that uh, it can improve social bonding and interaction. It also has the paradoxical effect of increasing tribalistic tendencies on account of tighter lock-in of in-group thinking. So in other words, you're on oxytocin or you're given an oxytocin boost. It certainly makes you feel closer to your uh, your immediate social group, so your in-group, um, whether it be a partner or whether it be, uh, let's say, a group of individuals. What we didn't expect and what the studies have shown is that what that does at the same time is increase feelings of xenophobia, is that because you've got tighter in-group lock-in now, you have more suspicion of the out-group. So there's a total, that's a totally paradoxical um, you know, uh, side effect, if you will, from uh, taking oxytocin. So... Heightening, uh, moreover, I think that when you heighten a virtuous trait, it doesn't necessarily imply that you're going to become a better person overall. And in fact, it could cause other problems. Paul Bloom showed, for example, that serial rapists have the highest self-esteem of any group. And Patrick Hopkins noted that hypermorality could cause crippling, debilitating effects on agency. Well, I think what he's trying to say there is, let's say you were hypermoral, and that virtually every action that you made, you considered it in terms of its moral weight, that you might actually be paralyzed and debilitated. You couldn't step on ants. You couldn't acquire any wealth. Um, you ha- you'd have to live a completely ultra-selfless life, and what kind of a squalid life might that be? Um, again, some of these are deeply existential issues. I do realize that, and lifestyle issues. Uh, but these are certainly things that we have to consider if, let's say, they were pulled away from your sense of... Uh, uh, con- decision making and what you consider to be right, right kinds of actions. So, take uh, Eric Perrins. He also expressed a similar concern about side effects. He claims that really that no one really wants a soma pill, that kind of uh, brave new world soma. Uh, what he's kind of analogizing there, and he's saying that it would diminish our options and negatively impact on our freedom. At the same time, however, he noted the complexity of creating the kind of love pill advocated by Matthew Lau. Matthew Lau presented on. Uh, using uh, like a pill, creating like a um, uh, a moral enhancement pill, this probably mostly he thought it could be done with oxytocin, that would improve the child-parent bond and child-parent uh, relationship. And he re- and he he basically intended it for special cases such as uh, for those parents who just feel extremely alienated uh, by their children or that they can't they they feel maybe even exploited by them or resentful toward them. Or in other cases, let's say like foster parents or uh, adoptive parents where that biological bond has been absent. And if you think I'm crazy or that Matthew's crazy, uh, there is a deficit, if you will, in social bonding in some of these cases. Let's take uh, breastfeeding, for example. That's a definite time for uh, mother and child bonding as there is an, uh, as mother's milk does contain oxytocin. So even biologically, there, 
evolution has primed us for moral enhancement in this sense. Uh, and absent of that, perhaps there might be a, a problem in the kind of bonding that happens between mother and child. So on the one hand, uh, back to Eric Perens, on the one hand, Perens argued that we should reject a pill that creates love because it feels that it would separate us from how the world really works. That we don't, because we don't actually, we didn't come to love somebody, let's say, quote unquote, naturally, that it kind of gives us a, an alienation from real world reality. But at the same time, he did admit that we should like to have or consider such a, an intervention because a love pill could create love as it would facilitate meaningful activities. So let's say you've got a couple now, and this is a, a thesis put out by, uh, I believe, Julian Savalescu and Anders Sandberg, both of whom were absent, by the way. And I, I say that kind of like, a bit upset because they were totally they should have been at this conference they would have really had benefited from uh, the conference would have benefited from their presence there and i'm sure certainly they would have taken something out of it but uh, certainly matthew liao was there and he's a colleague of uh, andrew sandberg in fact matthew liao if you'll remember uh he is one of the co-authors of that infamous not, that now infamous paper uh with anders and other and another writer um about uh modifying humans to adapt to global warming. If you listen to a previous podcast, you'll remember my talking about that. So it's nice to meet Matthew finally in person, and I actually talked to him about it. Um, now I'm kind of digressing. But um, so yes, child-parent bond, should we do it uh, artificially? Uh, Eric Perrin saying that we should approve a pill, though, that could create love as it would facilitate meaningful activities, meaning that even if you had, let's say, um, are, uh, uh, you know, uh, unnaturally created a bond between, let's say, a couple... That's, that doesn't mean it's a bad thing or, or that it doesn't mean, doesn't really matter how you did it. Now you've created a couple that are in love and they bonded with each other and now life goes on in a wonderful, in a wonderful way. The, the two of them can share their lives together. And that was, by the way, there, there, the paper I'm talking about, the, uh, Sandberg Savalescu papers titled The Chemicals Between Us. And it was an attempt to show that future, the future of marriage counseling could involve actual pharma, pharmacological, uh, interventions, which is fascinating. To be sure. So aside from oxytocin, serotonin, and propanol, and the implication of, let's say, you know, certain brain uh, areas that are required for moral action, there was very little attention um, given to um, how we could actually go about moral enhancement in a real meaningful sort of a way. So virtually all the interventions proposed were of uh, a pharmacological in nature, hence the over-reliance of what I thought was the ridiculous term morality pill with no consideration given for genetic function, epigenetic factors, or ways that we could actually physically alter the brain's mechanical function. So, for example, deep brain stimulation or transcranial magnetic stimulation. And part of the problem, I think, was lack of imagination amongst the neuroscientists when it came to enhancement, most of whom, it's fair to say, have never even really considered moral enhancement prior to this conference. Like, And, and to be fair, this is a brand new area of inquiry. So this was, you know, in, in a way... Uh, a first attempt to start talking about this sort of uh, sort of stuff, and it's definitely one area though that could stand some improvement in our thinking. Now, it's worth noting that neuropharma is not necessarily a bad thing uh, in terms of, uh, in one particular uh, area, and that is it's the impermanent nature of it. It's not a bad thing because the idea that you could reverse an undesirable brain state may prove to be beneficial. It's a strategy that would work well within my designer psychologies model, which is this idea that you can you should be able to change your psychology on the fly. Uh, in a, in a context-specific sort of a way. So neuropharma would certainly lend itself toward that. But the problem with it, though, is that it's it's very untargeted uh, and blunt. 
um, doesn't necessarily take your genetic factors into consideration. Or let's take oxytocin. Uh, the, the neuroscientist at the event, Molly Crockett, she noted that oxytocin and serotonin, serotonin they do a lot more than just instigate feelings of social bonding. It, it, she put up a whole list of like 20 different things that oxytocin does uh, that's, that had nothing to do, let's say, with your moral sense. So we really can't use them for this kind of specificity without incurring some serious side effects or unintended consequences. And in terms of developing um, moral enhancement interventions, very little consideration was given to the role of supply and demand and the role of big pharma in all of this. And one can make a strong case that demand does in fact exist. And as a result, pharmaceutical companies will eventually start to develop effective interventions. So what do I mean by moral enhancement being in demand already? Well, let's take MDMA, for example. It's illegal and it's unhealthy, but it's certainly in demand. And, and MDMA, what makes it fascinating is that it, elicit, it elicits heightened feelings of connectedness and empathy. So it's not a, it's not a, a, a hallucinogen. Um, and I guess to a certain degree, it can be a sensory enhancer. In this case, the sense is your feelings of connectedness and empathy. So that, in my books, is that's as a bona fide a moral enhancement intervention if I've ever heard one. And considering the widespread use of MDMA, it's fair to say there's considerable demand. And you could even make a strong case that Adderall is a kind of virtue enhancement in the way this is that Hughes talked about, in that it enables a person to focus on a specific task and get things done. And this is what I was just talking to, talking about earlier, the improvement or the strengthening of strong executive control in moral decision-making. So in other words, because uh, improving your sense of uh, willpower uh, can, can um, be considered a, uh, a cognitive enhancement, it should also be considered part of a moral enhancement in your ability to go about stronger or better moral decision-making. So maybe Adderall is also a kind of, uh, you can see that there's a demand for uh, a moral enhancement there, at least in this sense, virtue enhancement. Free or yeah, strong will being a kind of virtue. I think you did. We would all admit to that, wouldn't you? All like have a stronger sense of of will and willpower, um, the ability to let's say not procrastinate, and uh, I would take that pill. Um, okay, just to conclude here, looking at maybe big picture, um, one thing I would have liked to have seen more at this conference was the discussion about ends. And yes, there was some talk about it in the sense that. Okay, okay, why should we do moral enhancement? What's the, what's the big picture here? What do we actually want? And uh, it's certainly, I, I think that there was some talk about it in the sense that it fulfilled the demands of certain ethical frameworks like virtue, deontological, utilitarian, and consequential, but not so much about actual like desired results for both individuals and society as a whole. And I think Matthew Liao's talk was a bit of an exception because he was actually talking right there about, you know, a specific thing, you know, helping parents bond with their children. That's the kind of thing I wanted to hear a bit more of. And I was hoping to hear more about moral enhancement in the context of ensuring human flourishing, happiness, and well-being. But I think maybe I'm being too picky. I think even Hughes' virtue enhancement, he certainly talked about very specific things. And even, you know what, you can look at utilitarianism and realize it's broad enough of a framework to make these sorts of assumptions, that we are talking about what we value and maximizing the distribution of uh, the things we consider to be good and valuable. So in this sense, I think it was all implied. So... Yeah, Moral Brain 2012, all over and done with. Absolutely fascinating and, and certainly provocative. And it was one of the, the, the better conferences I've, I've ever attended. And I certainly hope to see the discussion rekindled again in the near future. And it was very well attended, by the way. Uh, it had um, hundreds of people there. They uh, had a, uh, they actually had to, they had to, uh, this was a, sh a waiting list uh, by invite only type thing. And by the end of it, 
And, uh, yeah, and demographically, it was across the board. And, of course, there were lots of students from NYU there who made up, I think, the bulk of the audience. So, yeah, now uh, that's over and done with. It's nice to think about it and can, I'll hopefully continue to, to be um, uh, you know, provoked by this talk to write more about it and to consider about it. But I think moral enhancement is now part of the vernacular uh, when it comes to human enhancement and transhumanist discourse. So I would certainly expect to hear more of it in the future. All right, time for break. Listen to more music. And when we get back, reaction to my Dyson Shell article. Wow, I'm getting uh, I'm getting lots of lots of attention, but not necessarily good attention. But as they say, there's no such thing as bad publicity, if you will. And certainly, people are talking about it. Okay, so let's uh, let's take a quick break. As you'll remember, uh, back in late March, I published an article entitled How to Build a Dyson Sphere in Five Relatively Easy Steps. I don't want to go over that article too much. If you uh, are interested, either listen to a previous podcast or hit my blog and look for that article. And what's been really interesting is how it's been picked up by a number of publications, including Forbes, and in particular, the uh, the science writer Alex Snap, who Alex Snap, who wrote not, not just one, but two critiques, if you will, of my article. And as well, there was an article in PopSci, uh, PopSci uh, also critical uh, of the uh, the article, but mostly borrowing from Alex Knapp's analysis. And then um, more recently, I've heard that it was on, um, it actually even made it to tested.com that many of you may be familiar with. And uh, so the, the general the general idea here is that they don't see my time. They don't necessarily agree with well. One of two things. One, there's disagreement about my timelines, and that's one of the more provocative things that I suggest in the article. Is that I do suggest that we could get started on this project in about 25 to 50 years, and that it's it's through the boot the bootstrapping uh, process, and through things like exponential growth that we could even conceivably finish the project in in about half a uh, half a century, if not even less. 
and that it, that over the process we would d- basically dismantle uh, mercury. Um, we would dismantle mercury and uh, up to about fifty one percent of its uh, of its content. And uh, the other complaints is that this is misguided, uh, that uh, there's more important things that we need to do, blah, 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 which which kind of I can't believe because I figure, if, if anything, one of the most pressing concerns for humanity right now is the energy question. And this would certainly uh, alleviate, uh, you know, much of our energy uh, needs uh, you know, as is possible. And I think other people are complaining that there's that there may be more viable or more efficient or more you know, prudent ways of going about harvesting energy, and that 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 this perhaps is overkill, which might be a fair point. I'll I'll maybe give that you know some 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 currency. And uh, so yeah, if you're interested in these articles, uh, do check it out. I will share for you, for example, the the PopSci article because it does provide a nice summary of the critiques. So this one was written by Rebecca Boyle. By the way, I have to laugh. The, the PopSci tagline is "The Future Now." And I, I, I laugh at the irony here because here I am proposing a kind of futuristic vision, a, a roadmap, if you will, to how um, we could enter into a Dysonian kind of an existence. And they, they're, and then they're the ones that basically say we shouldn't do this. Like literally, not that we couldn't, but that we, sh- as you'll see in the, what I'm about to read to you, um, Rebecca Boyle argues that we shouldn't do this. So, um, so much for that tagline, the the future now, or maybe actually that does need to be implied quite literally. The future is now because the future is not in the future. So here is the article that's entitled, Why Turning Mercury into a Dyson Sphere to Harvest so- Solar Energy is Not Worth It by Rebecca Boyle. Quote, Rising energy prices usually spark some creative ideas for alternatives, but a new one from futurist named George Dvorsky is pretty far-fetched. He envisions destroying mercury and scavenging its rocky remains. The debris could be used to build an array of solar-powered collectors, a Dyson swarm, around the sun. Renowned theoretical physicist Freeman Dyson explored the idea in the 1960s. It basically involves creating a kind of shell or sphere around the sun that could collect the entirety of its radiation output, which could then be harnessed for use on Earth. Dvorsky builds on the theories of Oxford physicist Stuart Armstrong and says to build a properly sized Dyson swarm, we would need to take mercury apart. Forbes writer Alex Knapp takes his argument apart instead, crunching some numbers with the help of astronomer Phil Plate. And you can uh, there's a link, by the way, on the uh, the website to Phil Plate's and uh, Alex Knapp's critique. And they break down of joules needed to dismantle mercury versus the joules obtained by solar collectors. But the gist is that they would take 174 years to recover the energy input that it would take to blow up the lovely geo geologically interesting innermost planet so why do we do it at all so and quote that for a second by the way i've gotten a lot of this the the who's talking about blowing up mercury like really now no one's we're not talking about blowing it up we're talking about sending robots to the surface an automated uh army if you will of robots that will go about the mining of the planet we're not talking about blowing it up at all that i can't believe that some people actually think that was part of the plan but whatever okay back to the article quote it's obviously not a practical idea, but it does bring to mind an interesting paradox in energy policy. Most people agree that alternative sources of energy are required to break humans' dependence on light, sweet, crude oil. You can argue about the reasons why, global warming or high prices or dependence on unstable countries, etc., but let's just agree that we need to get over oil. The problem is we need to use oil to get over oil. We can't build cadmium telluride solar panel factories without big trucks, likely powered by diesel. We can't harvest or refine the rare earth metals for efficient batteries without using heavy mining 
equipment and so on. So we'd better get moving on this stuff while we still can, while we have enough oil left to build something else. In a way, the Dyson Sphere concept is plagued by the same problems. If it worked, such a plan would provide the planet with vast amounts of energy. But using the energy to execute the plan makes it seem pointless, doesn't it? End quote. All right. Now, so there I was, getting bombarded with negativity and maybe lack of imagination and vision and ambition even. I mean, this is the kind of thing that had we proposed in the 60s and 70s, I would have, you know, it would have been much more positive and like, yeah, let's do it. But uh, as Newt Gingrich certainly found out recently, you can't really talk about space anymore. You, you just can't. Not, not, um, it's, you're just not going to be taken seriously. So, you know, a- any ideas that are even seemingly bold or radical in this sense are certainly um, going to be seen um, with a jaundiced eye. And I think part of it is that there's just this, uh, I think we're, we're discouraged by the, the lack of, uh, you know, uh, results from the space program to date. That we haven't, you know, gone to the next solar system or whatever. Um, I think secondly as well, we have so many, we do genuinely have problems here on the planet Earth, be it global warming and, uh, and other factors. And I think that's, that's occupied our attention and we're not necessarily seeing the bigger picture now as a result. So fascinating turn of events though. Uh, yesterday I get an email from none other than, uh, from none other than, um, uh, sorry, from, uh, Philip T. Metzger. Of NASA, and Philip Metzger is the lead um, project lead at the Granular Mechanics and Regolith Operations Laboratory at NASA's Kennedy Space Center. And uh, he had read my article about the Dyson Sphere and thought he'd send me a letter. So I will read you his letter to me. Quote: I have attached a preprint preprint of an article that was just accepted by the Journal of Aerospace Engineering. It explains in a little more detail than prior work how to initiate this sort of space industry affordably and very fast. I agree that it would take only 20 years to start up an industry that would then grow with only a few more decades to millions or billions of times the industrial capacity of the U.S. We modeled it to understand some of the key parameters and to test whether the concepts is very robust, and we found that it is indeed very feasible and very affordable. There is no reason why we can't start right now, end quote. Amazing, eh? Now, the paper that uh, Metzger co-wrote is titled Affordable Rapid Bootstrapping of Space Industry and Solar System Civilization. And it has not been published yet, but it's been accepted for publication. So he asked me not to share the article with anyone. I, I, did, I did ask him, by the way, though, that, that when, once it is published, that he does let me know so that I can share it because it's got some fascinating insights. And obviously, they do, the, they do the number crunching. You get to see their data sets and their graphing, and you can see why they come up with these astounding conclusions. But what I will do for you is read you the abstract of his paper, which gives you a rough overview of what they're talking about at NASA. So, quote, Advances in robotics and additive manufacturing have become game-changing for the prospects of space industry. It has become feasible to bootstrap a self-sustaining, self-expanding industry at reasonably low cost. Simple modeling was developed to identify the main parameters of successful bootstrapping. This indicates that bootstrapping can be achieved with as little as 12 metric tons landed on the moon during a period of about 20 years. The equipment will be teleoperated and then transitioned to full autonomy so the industry can spread to the asteroid belt and beyond. The strategy begins with a sub-replicating system and evolves it towards full sustainability, full closure, via an in-situ technology spiral. The industry grows exponentially due to the free real estate, energy, and material resources of space. 
The mass of industrial assets at the end of bootstrapping will be 156 megatons with 60 humanoid robots or as high as 40,000 megatons with as many as 100,000 humanoid robots if faster manufacturing is supported by launching a total of 41 megatons to the moon. Within another few decades, with no further investment, it can have millions of times the industrial capacity of the United States. Modeling over wide parameter ranges indicates this is reasonable, but further analysis is needed. This industry promises to revolutionize the human condition. I'll say that again. This industry promises to revolutionize the human condition. Yeah, and I say, yeah, no kidding. So how cool is that? How sweet is that to get, a, you know, it's one thing to have, you know, Forbes magazine and Pop Psy say, you know, poo-poo your idea. Uh, in this case, um, the idea is really, you know, put out by Stuart Armstrong. I'm just, you know, in many ways in support of and, are, and articulating some of the cases that he and some of the guys at Oxford have been making. But it's very nice to to hear that, um, you know, that somebody is, 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 is get when you get a letter from a NASA, really, and, and you know that NASA's got your back when you're making a case. That's a, that's a very cool feeling. So I did send this article to Alex Knapp of Forbes, and uh, I've yet to hear back from him and uh, see if he has anything to say about that. I might also sell, send it to Phil Plate and see what he has to say. But uh, let's just say, at this point, the debate is on. We're talking about it, and how exciting is that? And uh, you know, and another thing, just to end on this on this segment, I don't mean to, you know, when I say that we could get started in about twenty-five to fifty years, yes, that's that's what's viable. We could, we very well could get started in, in about that time. But do I actually think we will? No, I don't. I don't necessarily think we will. As I was talking about a few minutes ago, we seem to lack the will to want to do this. We'd lack the enthusiasm, and clearly, if if the reactions that I've been getting to this article are any indication, there's no mode. There's just no vision. There's just no motivation. I'm just getting criticism at this point for for what is you know seen to be a ridiculous idea. So certainly, based on the, that kind of negativity, we absolutely then won't get started in 25 to 50 years, even if we are you know capable of doing it. So there you have my cynical take on the matter at this point. All right, time for break. And the last segment of this week's episode will be about the Al Jazeera interview that I gave last week.
So on March the 28th, I was a guest panelist on the Al Jazeera show The Stream, talking about the promise and perils of transhumanism. And I was joined by Robin Hansen, the economist of George Mason University, and Ari Shulman of The New Atlantis. Now, Robin Hansen, he's more of a sympathizer. He would not call himself a transhumanist. He doesn't uh, like the term. But he's definitely, like I said, uh, one who's generally in support of uh, uh, you know advancing technologies. But uh, Ari Shulman of The New Atlantis, that's definitely an opponent. And I'm going to play the clip for you in just a, in just a bit. But you'll hear... Um, You'll hear uh, just kind of like the, how serious they are in terms of their opposition to transhumanism and the whole idea of human enhancement. These guys are definitely hardcore when it comes to their opposition of these ideas. They couldn't have picked, I think, a better guy to, to be on there, except that it tends to be a bit, I think, hyper-reactionary. And uh, th- this is, in a way, part of the legacy of the Bush administration and the Leon Cass-led um, uh, 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 Council on Bioethics. So this is about as bioconservative as it gets. And uh, after I play the clip, uh, I will provide a bit of commentary and even a bit of a rebuttal to some of the things that uh, Shulman had to say. Um, I will tell you just briefly before we get into the clip as how how this was all set up. Um, Al Jazeera, of course, being a kind of CNN, if you will, of the Arab world and the Muslim-speaking world. This was Al Jazeera English, by the way. And I'm not sure what the audience was in terms of... Uh, uh, listeners, but clearly we're talking about you know hundreds, if not even into the millions of listeners. The strange thing is, you never get a sense of that when you're doing a Skype uh, at home, which is what I was doing. So for those of you who've actually physically seen the video, uh, you'll see me. I'm just sitting in my living room with my headphones on, looking at a bl- essentially what is a blank screen. I didn't see my fellow panelists. I didn't see the host who was interviewing me. I didn't see any of the graphics that were part of the uh, the production. All I had were my headphones on, and I was listening. So that was kind of it was, it was weird and uh, uh, even a bit intimidating. And as the and as the interview first got started, I was certainly get going through the uh, the jitters a little bit and definitely speaking too fast and tripping over my words. But once I started to get a hang of the format, and then uh, and and, how, and and seeing that it was flowing nicely, then I then I managed to calm down and slow down and be a bit more articulate in terms of what I was saying. I think you'll get a sense of that in the uh, in the interview. As well, a format like this doesn't really lend itself to more nuanced and thoughtful discussion. There's only so much you can say in a short amount of time and within the constraints of sound bites and very targeted questions that tends towards a kind of sensationalism. And all the while, you're trying to keep the conversation as accessible as possible, given such a wide and diverse audience. I'm trying to imagine the the Al Jazeera audience thinking, man, how can I even begin to express some of these ideas to this particular demographic? Um, I don't think I did too badly. Uh, I'm, I'm happy with the performance and the things that I had to say. No regrets. Don't take anything back. And I don't think this segment was terrible by any means, and I was able to get my, my two cents in. But like I said, um, at the end of the clip that I'm going to play for you now, I will say uh, several things in, in reaction to what Ari Shulman had to say. So enough of me rambling on. Listen to me rambling on in another format, another in another channel. So here is my appearance on the Al Jazeera show uh, this dream and I uh, didn't really have a talk except that uh, a, a title and that really it was just kind of like a discussion on the promise and perils of transhumanism and the stream being a show that's trying to be very techno savvy and being very tied into the social networking world so they just want to put that in there because they do rely on Twitter and Facebook and these and, and internet outlets helps to drive the show so there's very much a, a user a listener interaction which I actually thought was pretty cool we were literally getting questions from the, the twitter sphere from facebook uh, audience and so on and being part of this broader community and broader dynamic and the last 10 minutes of the uh, of the episode 
was uh, strictly off the uh, television and just strictly in the internet world, which is pretty cool as well. Okay, here's the clip. Have a listen, and we'll add some commentary on the other side. Hi there, welcome once again. I'm Imran Garda, and you're in the stream. Today, merging man and machine. How far could scientists go in re-engineering human evolution? We'll discuss the ethics of transhumanism. Our digital producer, Malika Bilal, is here as always, looking out for all your live feedback. You can tweet her your comments and questions with the hashtag AJStream. Hi, Malika. Hey, Imran. Well, joining her on the couch is Ari N. Shulman, senior editor at The New Atlantis, which is a journal which covers the intersection of science and society. Also the co-author of the blog, Futurisms. Eric, welcome. We're looking forward to uh, your opinion Thank on you. this fascinating subject. Looking Thanks forward for to having me. Yep, great to have you on the show. Looking forward to learning from you. As well. Now, today's show was suggested to us via Facebook from Zed Shamim in London. Now, if you want to suggest a future topic for the stream, just go to mm. facebook.com forward slash AJStream and then just like us. Hi, I'm Alexander Young, founder and CEO of SoundCloud. We're unmuting the web and I'm in the stream. Now, a cyborg future. That's what proponents of the movement known as transhumanism are envisioning. And if you look at today's biotech advancements, one might think we're not that far off. From bionic arms and hearing implants for the deaf, to Botox and drugs that improve our concentration every day, we're hearing about new types of enhancements. But could they ever go too far and even transcend what we've defined as being human? What ethical implications could society face in creating humanity version 2.0? Well, here to help us understand these issues is uh, George Dvorsky, He's a bioethicist, futurist, and chairman for the Institute of Ethics and Emerging Technologies. He also blogs on the website Sentient Developments and is joining us via Skype from Toronto. And uh, also with us via Skype is Robin Hansen. He's an associate professor of economics at George Mason University and a research associate at the Future of Humanities Institute at Oxford University. And he's joining us from Hawaii in the U.S. Robin and George, welcome to the stream. George, I want to start with you. Let's... Get first things first, what is transhumanism? Help us with a definition. Sure. Transhumanism is a, it's a philosophical, it's a cultural idea. It basically suggests that we can and should use our technologies to improve the human condition. We've kind of come to the realization that uh, evolutionary biology and Darwinian processes have only gotten us so far. And it really has kind of come to a grinding halt. And now it's really up to ourselves, the human species, up, up to intelligence to take us forward to the next stage in our development. And really what it is as well, it's largely a continuation of our medical sciences. This is really nothing new. It's just that the, the degree to which the changes are now going to happen is certainly an order of magnitude greater than they have been in the past. But really, the human species is defined as the species that has taken itself out, if you will, of the, the Darwinian paradigm and started to forge its own future. So more radically speaking, or even more uh, practically speaking, what that means is such things as the application of genomics and genetic technologies. It can be such things as cybernetics, so everything from uh, prosthetic limbs through to internal organs and so on. It can even mean such things as changing the way our bodies look, the way our bodies function. And most importantly, I think, it also change, we can change the ways in which our mind works to make us perhaps smarter, to give us perhaps a, a greater capacity for memory, even to be able to control our mood and to get rid of some of those, those uh, nasty bugs that are part of uh, uh, human failings, if you will, in terms of how, uh, how far Darwinian processes got us. Oh, okay. So like I said, go ahead. 
Okay, I want to bring Robin in. Robin, what George said sounds very exciting, but is transhumanism inherently positive or is it neutral? Can it be used for good or bad? Well, changes can be used for many purposes, of course. Uh, the, the transhuman music movement, as George indicates, tends to be uh, advocates uh, po- thinking of it as positive and, and hoping for it. There are others who are expressing more concerns, even opposition. Uh, I think it's great that we're starting to think about all these possibilities. It, it's obvious that over the long run, uh, there'll be a lot more possibilities for how we and our descendants can change. I, I think it's somewhat premature to either advocate for or oppose uh, these changes because we don't actually know very much about the context in which they'll appear. Eric, premature? I mean, there's so much that we're yet to learn about this, but is it perhaps good that we're having this conversation now to figure out whether we like it or not? Uh, Yeah, absolutely it is. I mean, better to talk about this before we just sort of plunge in. Uh, Robin Mm -hmm. is right that a lot of it depends on what happens, and one of the interesting things with transhumanism is it's kind of uh, whatever people want it to be to different people. It's it's sort of a grab bag of different things, but there there are a few aspects of it that are common to all transhumanists. You heard George talking about how this is no different from what we're already doing, uh, that this is just the same as medical technology, but then he kind of went on to describe all the ways that it is actually very different, uh, tinkering with the genome, uh, giving ourselves drugs to change our, our moods and our personalities, uh, uploading ourselves onto the internet. This is another big popular mm-hmm. idea among transhumanists. Uh, I think that these are, are pretty radically different. Uh, And the definition he gave of transhumanism I don't think is a very good one uh, because the idea of using technology to improve the human condition, that is what we've been doing all along. But this is is a a distinct break in using technology to actually change human nature. and that's, that's something that has very big implications. Okay, let's gauge the pulse of the community, Milika. Well, George, before you respond to that critique, I want you to listen to this tweet um, from members of our community. This is from Yoke Meme, who says, There's only so far humans can go in their quests to play God. Even with enhancements, life is life and death will be death. Um, and on the back of that, there's a tweet from Luke Shore, who says, Doesn't transhumanism all stem from humanity's persistent reluctance to accept the inevitable death? So how do you respond to, to claims that transhumanism is about trying to be immortal. Well, that certainly is a major component of transhumanism, this idea of radical life extension. And the idea is that uh, we're starting to get a very good handle on the aging process and the, uh, the biomechanical ways in which we do, in fact, age. And there are a number of models in place already that suggest, look, we can actually uh, do something about this, that uh, this is that aging can actually be looked at uh, like a disease unlike any other, and that all we have to do is get on top of the various factors and we can retard the aging process, even uh, potentially uh, halt the aging process altogether. So why that's so upsetting for so many individuals, and it's very understandable, is that this has been an absolutely inalienable part of the human condition. We live and then we die. And in fact, a, a culture is virtually uh, situated around that reality. So by upsetting the apple cart in this way, you're not quite naturally going to get a lot of negative reactions action toward it, that how dare you violate the natural order of things, how dare you play God, and so on. I think what this calls for is a very serious reevaluation of this uh, assumption that we do need to look at, okay, what does it mean perhaps to live hundreds and hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, and so on? What does it mean in terms of our uh, existential um, uh, type of placement in the world, our relation to others, and so on and so forth? But I think it's a very, we need to be cautious about reacting, I think, in such a knee-jerk way to the, the potentials for radical life extension. Okay, I want to bring your attention to um, a clip from a forthcoming documentary. It's called 
fixed the science slash fiction of uh, human enhancement, which explores the relationship between transhumanism and people with disabilities, perhaps the community greatest affected by these developments. We're going to hear from two, two people. The first is John Hockenberry, who's a journalist and disability rights activist, who says that having human enhancements is no different from being human. Take a listen. Everything from brain implants to spinal cord injury, rehab, to cell phones to gaming, there, there is no difference between them. What if this kind of collaboration with a machine was flexible enough to allow the user to do whatever they want with it? You want to make a device that has an, a sophisticated enough collaboration that that human will make it an arm in their own way, in their own image. I really don't understand the desire for enhancement technologies. We don't have basic health care, not only in this country, but globally. Preventable diseases are like number one killers globally. Talk about misplaced priorities. Talk about misplaced pi priorities was the last word we heard there. Robin, that debate among people with disabilities regarding transhumanism, is that a microcosm of the debates that are going to be held across the board involving everything else that transhumanism affects? I think so. I think that's fair. Uh, Ari emphasized how uh, we're facing some pretty radical change, and George emphasized how we're continuing with what we've done in the past, and I think they're both right. The fact is, in the past, we've had pretty radical change. We've already had radical life extension. We've already had radical changes to our environments and our work style and our, and our environment, the way we interact with each other. So we are facing uh, radical changes ahead. We don't have to pre-approve of all of them. We should you know, wait till see what's coming and then piece by piece in the context decide what we like. Robin says radical change. Ari, there's a tweet here from Ali Glenesk who says, who will govern access to transhumanist technology? If only the rich can access it, how will that impact evolution? So who gets to be in charge? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I think that the, the question of, uh, this is a common concern among transhumanist critics, of uh, increasing income inequality, or, or that these would be powers that would mostly go to the rich, that's an important one. I don't know that it's the best way to think about it. A, a more uh, salient way to think about it is, uh, not who would have access to it, but would these people be controlling other people, uh, the, the people who are creating these technologies and deciding how they're disseminated. Uh, and you can see why this is relevant when you look to the past history uh, of massive biotechnology programs. Uh, transhumanism really has its roots in many ways in the eugenics programs of the last century, uh, which are most uh, famously associated with uh, Nazi Germany, but they were also very prominent uh, in the United States. And this was a, a similar idea of people starting with the same premise, which is that human evolution is flawed and that we should take it into our own hands. And what they ended up doing was violating the human rights of people that they considered less desirable. There were mass programs of sterilization, in some cases even of euthanasia. Um, and that was really a case, one of the problems with that was that it was uh, a sort of centralized body deciding that other people's lives needed to be tweaked in this way. And you can, you can say that maybe that was just uh, these ideas gone wrong, but, but it's really inherent in the ideas uh, that human nature is not to be respected yeah. in some way. Yeah, you have, you have opened up a, a can of genetically enhanced worms there. Uh, yeah, let's, right. get, let's get George's response to that, because yeah. it's true. I mean, we think of that film, Gattaca, for example. A, what if you can't afford you know, the enhancements? And B, what if you want to opt out? What if you don't want the enhancements? Are we going to see a stratified society? 
Well, I really like the way you, you framed that question, actually, because um, I think that uh, the claim that uh, transhumanism is a kind of eugenics is actually somewhat of a gross mischaracterization. Uh, eugenics, if you remember, is a top-down imposition. It's either the state or certain groups in power that are imposing a certain will. Uh, it's imposing its will on a population, and it has a preconceived notion of what humans should look like, uh, what they should be like, uh, who, should, who they should reproduce with, and what their children should be like. Transhumanism is absolutely opposed to any of those ideas. In fact, it's very much a, a hands-off type of a, of a philosophy. If anything, it's, it's bottom-up, where we give the benefit of the doubt to individuals who are informed individuals in conjunction with their doctors, their fertility clinics, and so on, who will make the decisions that are right for themselves. So everything from their reproductive rights, their morphological rights, and their cognitive rights as well. So that's, I think, um, one uh, way to, that's a very important way to distinguish between uh, uh, what uh, was referred to as eugenics. And secondly, in terms of accessibility, again, there's a kind of a straw man argument that's kind of put forth that all transhumanisms are pie in the sky about all this sort of stuff. In fact, uh, if anything, one of the most pressing concerns amongst transhumanists is the accessibility issue. And we at the uh, Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technology, this is a very important issue for us. And for I, I, as, I as a Canadian citizen, uh, I have the benefit of universal health care. And right now, of course, that only pertains to those medical technologies that will make me well. But eventually, we'd like to think that, tech, that the line dividing wellness and enhancement is going to be increasingly bur blurred, such that there even won't be a fair distinction between the two. So I'd like to think that accessibility will be as universal for wellness technologies as well as for enhancement technologies as those lines will become increasingly uh, gray area. Robin, are you convinced? I think George is right. Aries being a little unfair. In the history of all technology, we've certainly had a lot of things that have happened, and a few of them have left really bad taste in our mouth, and eugenics was one of them. But I think it's unfair to pick that as a representative example of enhancement. Eyeglasses and automobiles are just as valid examples of enhancing humans as, as any uh, genetic changes have been. Uh, and, and I also think, uh, as George said, uh, people are concerned about inequality and wealth. I'm a little less concerned in the sense that in the past, new technologies always went to rich people first uh, because they could afford it, and they helped pay for the innovation that eventually allowed everybody else to have it. Eric? Uh, yeah, well, there's a lot to pick apart there. Um, I'd like to go back to this idea that, um, that transhumanism and eugenics uh, aren't fairly compared. Um, again, it's not an accident that uh, eugenics started with the same basic premise about human nature, which is that it's flawed and we should make it better and wound up where it did. Uh, and if you want to see uh, the lessons of that, you can look at some of the things that transhumanism is advocating today. Just in the last couple of weeks, uh, there have been proposals by transhumanists to institute massive uh, programs of drugging populations in order to make them less prone to criminal behavior. Uh, that's not exactly a, a bottom-up approach. Um, and there, you can see this playing out in terms of current uh, biotechnological issues. One of the really big issues today is uh, a trend called sex selection. Uh, this is a, a good example of biotechnology that started off with very good intentions and ended up running amok. So what's happening is that um, people are able to diagnose the gender of their baby in the womb, uh, and if the, the baby is not of a desired gender, then they end up aborting it. There are other ways that this can be done. It can be done at conception or even prior to conception using certain technologies. Uh, for the most part, it's being done using ultrasound. Mm -hmm. But the ethical issue is kind of the same in, in either case. And you get in these third world countries, uh, there's always one gender that they prefer, which is boys. Uh, and so what you found in third world countries is that uh, women are being, in some sense, eliminated. There are demographers who have estimated that 160 million women have been eliminated in the last couple of decades. Because of ultrasounds. Because of ultrasounds and yeah. sex selection, yeah. yeah. 
And this is something that uh, is alarming to people on all sides of the bioethical aisle. Transhumanists have been mostly silent about it. To the extent that they've talked about it, they've been mostly in favor of it. Um, and I just feel I ought to bring this up. Professor Hansen wrote about this on his blog in January. And he said, uh, this is a quote here, if male lives are more pleasant overall, it is good that we create more of them instead of female lives. Yes, supply and demand may eventually equalize the quality of males and female lives, but until then, why not have more lives that are more pleasant? Uh, so just to put that in context, if you imagine people sort of taking that attitude towards civil rights uh, issues of the past, that's, that's not exactly a prescription for uplifting people. Okay, before we get Malika to get some more community feedback, Robin, you want to come in there and respond? Um, he's right. Uh, that, that's what I said, and, and I meant it. <laughs> Uh, but we're talking about individual private choice. Uh, we, we can think about parents choosing children, uh, choosing high IQ versus low IQ children, choosing a- athletic versus less athletic children. I think it's uh, good if parents have the best of in- interest of their children at heart and choose children that they think will have better lives. I think that goes to the center of humanity, goes to the center of being a good human, uh, wanting the best for your children. Okay, let's dive back into... Well, this is definitely a conversation that's that's intriguing and scaring members of our community. This is from John Nichols. I will concede that part part of the benefits of transhumanism is dependent upon human goodwill. That scares me a bit, he says. Um, uh, Before we get to the next tweet, actually, there's a video here, a video comment from a member of our community. Um, He's also the creator of How Stuff Works. Let's have a listen. Transhumanism is the use of technology to make human beings better or to make human life better. And there are a lot of different things that fall into this category. For example, if we could develop a serum or some kind of gene therapy that would make it possible for humans to live to be 500 years old, that would be transhumanism. Or if we could come up with a bionic eye or even an electronic contact lens that would let us overlay data on the scene we're looking at, that would be transhumanism. But the thing I've really been interested in and written a lot about is the idea of disconnecting the human brain from the human body. So, for example, if your brain was disconnected, you could reconnect it into an electronic environment with incredible realism, and you'd be able to feel it, touch it, actually fully experience that environment. Or if you could take your brain and put it in a robotic body so that you had superhuman strength or speed or could swim underwater without a scuba tank, that would be transhumanism. So it's anything that a science fiction writer can dream up, and it might be here a lot sooner than we think. So, George, can we put our our bodies, can we we disconnect our minds? Uh, Is that coming? It very well may be coming. Uh, One of the uh, recent insights in our neurosciences is this thing that's referred to as uh, functionalism or computational functionalism, which is essentially the idea that the human brain is essentially a computer and it can be understood as much. So even though it's working with biology and working with, uh, uh, with, with brain cells, it's still doing a kind of computation. All we need to do is figure out how we can synthesize that and mirror that, let's say, in a computer. Assuming that we can do that, then there's a number of models that I've seen in place that can uh, help us actually transfer transfer a mind from, let's say, its biological base to a computer base. And that's when you have this kind of vision of uh, what's called uploading or non-corporeal existence. And that could be exactly that. It could be uh, uploading our minds into a supercomputer and living uh, living a, a life as a, as a virtual being in a, in a virtual reality environment. It could also mean discarding our biological bodies altogether, living in cybernetic or robotic bodies. So it's a, it's an, it's a very radical vision for the future, but it certainly will one that our, our science and our physics is perhaps indicating that may actually be quite possible. Uh, in terms of the desirability of that, that's certainly up to the individual. It's certainly up to uh, future generations to figure out for themselves. Now, many of these developments find a playground uh, um, among 
militaries and private contractors that sell to militaries. For example, we have this Lockheed Martin HULC or Hulk human exoskeleton. It's more like Terminator, uh, not Hulk. Um, let me show you some of this, just a little video of this. It basically gives you these kind of bionic legs, and uh, essentially it makes, to a certain extent, it makes soldiers super soldiers, uh, if you like. Um, Ari, if you have two armies up against each other, and they're both kind of enhanced by this sort of technology, doesn't that mean you know more carnage, more bloodshed, more firepower on both sides? It does. Uh, I don't think that's how it would actually play out. I think we all know which side would be having the technology and which wouldn't in terms of current conflicts. Uh, and you can see the ethical problems with that um, in drone wars today. Uh, it's a very tricky sort of thing to talk about because from, from one perspective, uh, it's, it's decreasing the number of casualties and it's making warfare more efficient. From another perspective, it's taking people out of the loop. Uh, you have people here outside of Washington basically controlling a video game that actually mm. kills people on the other side of the world. Uh, and however effective that may be, it's, it's worth considering what that does to us uh, morally and ethically uh, to be uh, conducting warfare in this kind of detached and impersonal way. If nothing else, if warfare is necessary, it's, it's a, the most serious thing that we can do. And we need to make sure that we treat it with respect. Okay, but let's ask Robin, because he's not going to be joining us for the post-show. The military aspect, the fact that this technology and transhumanism uh, as a part of this discussion means that you know, warfare is, is waged in a more impersonal way, is that a good or a bad thing? I, I don't really think we're discussing this technology. I think we're discussing technology in general. So on the average, overall, technology tends to be good. That, had has so far and probably will be in the future. But there are particular areas of technology where there, we have less reason to, to be enthusiastic, and military technology is certainly one of those. We have less reason to be encouraged or enthusiastic about advances in military technology than most other areas. So that'll be true whether it's technology for uh, computers or uh, explosives or whatever else it is. Uh, but I think we should look in a detailed, context-dependent way at, at particular technologies we're going to be concerned about. So just because, in general, we don't like military technology that much doesn't mean that we should ban each and everything that might be a military technology. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Fairly put. Thank you, George, Robin, and uh, Ari. George and uh, Ari will stay on for the post-show where we'll return to our discussion on transhumanism uh, online on stream.aljazeera.com. First, here's uh, Malika with a look at some of the story leads that we're following here at the stream. Welcome back to the post-show on stream.aljazeera.com. Uh, good to have you with us. Part of the conversation, we continue to talk transhumanism. Uh, the ethics of it in particular, which is something that's, that's worrying a lot of people. One of the tweets that just came through from Nicholas Slayton, who's um, a regular contributor, saying, transhumanism is inevitable. It will happen no matter what. The question is, how can it be done ethically and without mass conflict? Uh, that from Nicholas Slayton. Uh, George, I'm going to throw that to you, and I'm also going to throw to you uh, this other thing that is deemed inevitable, the concept of the singularity. Many scientists talk about it. Many transhumanists talk about it. This idea, if you look at you know, the Terminator example, it's the day that Skynet becomes self-aware, the day that computers develop their own brains and they become conscious. Is that inevitable, along with the different changes and evolution of transhumanism? Uh, yeah, the singularity, that's certainly a, uh, uh, contentious issue amongst uh, the futurist community in terms of not necessarily, is it going to happen, but what actually do we mean by the singularity? Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think at the, mo- at the most fundamental level, it does imply the, 
the existence, the, the coming of art, not just artificial intelligence, but greater than human artificial intelligence. And, and why that's a particular problem and why that's a particularly important point to look at in the future is that we can't really begin to understand how we might relate to that AI and what it may actually choose to do. Uh, the, the problem being is that it's not going to be, let's say, 10, 20, 30 times more powerful than, than, uh, than human minds, but that it will be an order of magnitude uh, greater in terms of its, abil- its, its, its capabilities, so millions potentially uh, of times greater. And what's particularly troubling about the idea of the singularity and the instantiation of machine minds is that we're not necessarily talking about uh, an intelligence that is self-reflective or even conscious. We're simply talking about brute calculators, expert systems that are simply amazing at doing whatever it was or is that's programmed to do. And uh, that's what's scary is that if it was somehow misprogrammed or it misinterpreted a, a certain goal that it was given, that it could actually go about the destruction of humanity or destruction of the planet or completely it could um, destroy resources and, and so on. So it is, uh, at this, but at the same time, uh, a number of uh, supporters, if you will, of, of the singularity idea suggest that it actually could herald um, um, a rather remarkable era uh, of of uh, human well-being or post-human well-being. So, and, the, and just want to end on this note, uh, the reason why it is, is even called a singularity is it's borrowed from the cosmological concept of the, the black hole singularity, simply meaning that it is simply the point in the future that we cannot look beyond. We do not know. We do not understand, and we cannot comprehend what will happen after machine intelligence comes into being. There's something, Ari, that uh, immediately strikes me with a lot of the language. It's almost quite, you know, that kind of utopian, sometimes apocalyptic language strikes me as quite religious in a kind of secular scientific way you know it kind of borrows these sort of religious themes of you know the singularity and these these moments a that humanity is on this you know upward arc towards some sort of you know utopia and then uh click there's an apocalypse um is is this a riddle inside an an enigma inside a mystery i mean is this something we we know nothing of or can we can we gauge this pretty well uh, I don't think it's something we know nothing of. I don't think it's something that we know nearly as much as most of the people who are speculating about it do. Uh, I mean, it's striking that that the sort of starting point of transhumanism is to say that our nature is extremely flawed, uh, that we have cognitive weaknesses and bodily weaknesses. So they, they emphasize those limitations, but at the same time have this enormous confidence in our ability to know what the future is like and in our wisdom to be able to guide that well. And one example is George was talking earlier about uh, functionalism and AI. That's, that's an idea that's been philosophically dead for decades uh, and that cognitive scientists are now really discarding as useful in understanding the mind. Uh, but there are, there are these whole pies in the sky that were built on this idea that we, can, uh, that we would be able to control AI in the same way that we'd be able to control our computer programs. And there's such an enormous amount writing on these, on these programs that would be effectively so powerful that they they would be running the world. They, they seem mm. to have the confidence that we would be able to engineer them to be what they call friendly, mm. which means either they wouldn't be able to kill us all or maybe better yet, they would be able to, to uh, act in a way that's beneficial mm. to us. Uh, and I just don't think that we know anything nearly enough about them to be able to ensure that uh, in any way. Malika? Well, a lot of what we're talking about today is, seems like it's the stuff of science fiction. Um, but I think, George, on, on a point that, that came up in the main show in the video comment and something that you mentioned, if we accept the fact that there could be a day when we can separate our minds and our brains from our bodies, um, there's a tweet here from Michael who says, will the human bodies be housed in vats or exterminated after brain uploads? Now, this sounds like the stuff of movies, but is that possible? What happens 
there could actually be both. This is what's referred to or distinguished by what's called a hard simulation and a soft simulation. A hard simulation is the kind of thing that you would have seen in the movie The Matrix, where you had our heroes were what's called jacked in into the Matrix. So they still had their bodies in the in the so-called real world, uh, but their what happened was all of their senses were shut down and replaced by a new set of experiences, a new environment in which they thought they were dwelling in. So they could still actually have their physical corporeal being uh, remain intact there's another idea that's referred to as the soft simulation and this is the idea where we would discard our bodies altogether there's nothing to return to unless of course you could upload yourself into a robotic or a cybernetic body that sort of a thing but ultimately the idea there is that you would be living in uh in again a virtual reality environment permanently in a supercomputer george forgive me if this sounds ignorant I'm not a biological expert, but uh, given that there won't be a clear distinction between man and machine with many of these scenarios, if they do unfold, there might be a blurry line between the two, and the machine aspects might augment what is already there in terms of the kind of human qualities, if you like. Does that not slow down human evolution? Because at the crux of human evolution and natural selection, there's an issue of kind of adapting and, and kind of surviving to different circumstances right. doesn't that make you all pampered and then you kind of you know it's devolution after that isn't it surely um i think what we're essentially doing is well first of all i just want to just correct you in terms of uh, our, our ongoing evolution again evolution does take uh, take uh it happens over this over the scale of hundreds of thousands of years and certainly millions of years so in order for us to even measure evolution at a, at a generational level is pretty impossible. Moreover, because we've, some, we've somewhat uh, divorced ourselves from the natural kingdom and the selectional processes, evolution really has ground to a halt. We are really not evolving anymore. There is still some evolution in terms of sexual selection uh, and mate selection, uh, but for the most part, we're no longer adapting, if you will, to our environment through the processes of, uh, of, uh, of survival of the fittest. So this is where I think uh, intelligence needs to come in and step in and ask ourselves, okay, thanks, Darwin for getting us this far but clearly the uh and uh ari seems to suggest that human nature is, per is perfect and the body is perfect uh, i seem to disagree i mean we are prone to so many psychological disorders so many tendencies so many different biases in our brain and clearly our bodies our bodies are extremely limited in terms of not only their capacities but they age and uh, they get more and more uh, degraded as time uh, progresses. And I could go on and on about the different things that we could work to correct. So if anything, uh, I, don't, I don't, don't necessarily think that we're going to get soft or that we're going to uh, devolve. If anything, intelligence is taking over. It can take a strategic look uh, at pot potentially at where we need to go. And again, I don't necessarily feel that this is like the government saying that this is where we need to go. Again, that to me is uh, absolutely ab abhorrent. But just uh, collectively through the, through the, through the, uh, the course of individual decisions, through the advent of individual technologies that are, are collectively in demand, we will continue to evolve, if you will, into the, uh, into, into the future. So it's, and if anything, the human condition is anything but static right now. Harry? Harry, uh, actually, before you respond to that, I want sure. to add another layer to, to what George was talking okay. about. And this is a tweet from Eric who says, what's the alternative if not transhumanism? Should we, should we remain at our present state or perhaps backward? And I think that ties in well with what he was saying. Sure. Um, I, I just want to clarify, I, I, I I feel like it's been made clear from my comments. I don't think uh, human nature is perfect in, in any way. We've known for a long time that we're uh, very flawed creatures. Uh, it, it's part of a, a proper understanding of that to know that uh, it is tremendous hubris to be able to think that we're smart enough to be able to do this well. Uh, and again, there's a track record uh, in biotechnology uh, over the last hundred years or so, and it's pretty bad, and it's not an accident that it's bad. Uh, as to your other question, I think the future should be a human one. We, we should go forward with medicine. We should keep trying to, uh, to cure disease. 
Um, and there are uh, a million other fronts in technology. Uh, I, for one, am very much in favor of space exploration. Uh, it's, it's really kind of surprising to me that uh, transhumanists uh, and the American public in general doesn't really support manned space exploration anymore. Uh, and I think that it makes sense for transhumanists because they don't really like humanity. They see it as, as hubristic in a way for us to be traveling into space. They think that that should happen at the point that we upload our minds into computers and go off into virtual worlds that are in outer space. But I think we are very much at the beginning of human history, but it's human history that we should be interested in, not something besides that. I'd love to get into the space discussion, but we have run out of time because I have so much to say. We've got a warming Earth. There's so many uh, aspects to this. Yes. I, I mean, uh, we could do another show on that uh, completely. So uh, we'll save it in the bank and we'll invite you guys again right. next time. So just on the issue of eugenics, that one comes up. Actually, you can almost, you can almost tell the sophistication or even how bioconservative an opponent is to transhumanism and human enhancement is, is, and how quickly they bring up the issue of eugenics, and even more specifically, even like Nazi eugenics. And, uh, you know, I, I really don't, I don't, I really don't understand the, 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 the perspective here. And it's, it seems to me more scaremongering than anything. I just don't understand how they can frame transhumanism as, as being eugenic, particularly when we're talking about it in the context of the advancement of medical technologies and, in, in, and absolutely um, in the context of this being an issue of accessibility to individuals who are able to make informed choices for themselves, for their families, and in terms of their reproductive capacities. And it's just simply, um, I mean, this is maybe my bio-libertarianism, um, you know, creeping, creeping forward. But uh, for me, you know, I would look at, I look at, I look at all of this through the same lens that I look at, let's say, you know, a woman's right for abortion or for anyone's right for contraception or even for, let's say, end of life. Uh, I'm, a, I'm also an advocate of end of life um, uh, legislation and voluntary euthanasia. And it's, it, for me, it's all about primacy of the individual and uh, having as little state intervention as possible in terms of what we consider to be our health options. Our reproductive options, what, how we change our bodies, how we modify our minds and our thinking and our psychology. So what kind of kills me about all this is they refer to us as the eugenicists. Uh, I mean, us, we who are talking about diversity and, and, and multiplicity of form and shape and mind, talking about, you know, expanding on all that is possible in terms of what it means to be human. It, hence, you know, the idea of the transitional human, the transitory human, the transhuman, the, the entity that's evolving to the posthuman. And at the same time, they are the ones who would wish to impose a particular vision of humanity on humanity, which is stasis. That to me is eugenic, or as a word I've used earlier, it's neugenics, N-E-U-G-E-N-I-C-S. The idea that, that we must remain in this current state that we're in today, that for some strange reason of chance, that uh, it is the, it is the, it is the current state of humanity, our current condition that is the only good one that could ever happen. And secondly, what I'll also say, um, so first, the first point there being that they are the eugenicists. Secondly, what I will also say is the issue of hubris, that the, this, the, again, eugenics is the one, one charge you get, and then hubris being the second one, that how dare we even presume to know what's in the best interest of humanity, and then actually go about making those changes, that it's, that it's reckless, that we'd be opening up, opening up a Pandora's box. And again, I'll, I'll return the charge to the bioconservatives and say they are being equally hubristic and thinking that invoking a strong version of the precautionary principle is what's best for humanity right now, that this is as good as it gets. This is as good as it gets when you think of all the suffering that goes on there in the world, all of the disease, the infirmary, the ravages of aging, the psychological disorders that go on. 
it is so easy for somebody in the cheap sheet, in the cheap seats, such as uh, the one that you know Ari Shulman was sitting in, to make these claims, who are healthy in mind and body, and to claim that that is it's that that we are the ones that are hubristic and thinking that we could overcome these things. That is hubris, if I've ever heard of it, to suggest that we we need to stop and uh, not even delve into any of these areas that biotechnologies and the medical sciences could bring us to. So that's my you can tell I'm a bit of, you know riled up by this, but that that is whenever eugenics and hubris comes up, I get very frustrated and, and upset by it. These things, to me, are very much in the eye of the beholder. Okay, now, then there's the issue of uh, the claim that he made. I was incredulous when he said that computational functionalism has been out of vogue and put into disfavor for the last, what did he say, several decades, two decades at least? I'm floored by this. And I I would love to go to any, you know, any department at any university and go to the cognitive sciences department or even the, the neurosciences department, and ask them if computational functionalism, as the as the as the uh, primary mode of analysis right now in terms of how the brain works, if that is you know if that is in disfavor, and I would love to know what is it that they're using instead uh, in terms of the work that they're doing, and, and how he can even and how they, anyone can even make the claim that there's that some of the most um, you know primary activities in the brain that the whole idea of even of, of, of cognition is somehow outside of the information space, outside of the Turing realm, if you will, in terms of computation and the whole idea of the Turing machine. I'm very curious to see what special information they might have that would trump computational function functionalism this time as the, as the reigning paradigm in terms of our understanding of brain function. And lastly, uh, um, Ari Shulman noted on the issue of uh, that he, he kind of tried to put himself off as being progressive and that, you know, I love to, I want to see humans go into space that I, I you know I'm not so anti this and anti that. I want to see humans go into their spaceships and go into space. And, and he even kind of made this claim that, uh, that, uh, the transhumanists hate humans, which dr- dr- that, I, that claim, uh, drives me nuts. You know, transhumanism is an offset of humanism, which by definition is the love of all humans and love of humanity. If any, and if anything, the desire to, 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 you know, push things forward and to make the conditions as, 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 as desirable for possible for all humans. And, uh, anyways, um, so this idea that, uh, yeah, so humans in space, and I'm going to talk about this and perhaps write about this a bit more in future, but humans, I'm sorry, humans are not destined to go into space. Whether, whether or not you believe in interstellar colonization or in, in, you know, or even in extreme localization for, uh, you know, advanced intelligence, whatever, whatever your story is, even if let's say, even if we do go out and, and colonize the the uh, the, uh, the solar system and, and other star systems and even the entire galaxy, if we do that, it won't be humans doing that. I'm sorry, it will be post-humans doing that. Whether they be cyberized beings or whether they be um, uploaded beings in uh, in supercomputers or whether it even be done just strictly through autonomous robots and von Neumann probes and so on. Um, I've even heard schemes about um, beaming uh, energy, beaming uh, information patterns. Uh, through, at the speed of light from, let's say, station to station so that you could actually travel an individual in an unconstituted form could be uh, beamed from one, you know, one relay station to the next relay station at the speed of light and then reconstituted at the destination. There's absolutely no corporeal, even a physical element there. It was just strictly a data stream being transmitted from point A to point B. Anyways, these are the points I'm making is that none of these have humans in space. The whole Star Trek vision of farting around in a, in a spaceship is, is, is very archaic. It's a 50-year-old vision now that's it's frustratingly not falling out of favor in terms of our thinking, but that's about as sophisticated a, a you know futures vision as I suppose you're going to get from the uh, the New Atlantis people and the bioconservatives that uh, that are part of that. So, and, and just lastly on that, humans in space. Uh, even anyone who knows anything about cybernetics, 
knows that cybernetics was started in the 1950s at NASA by individuals who knew full well that humans will never work properly in space. At best, we can go up and down a little bit um, for short visits. But the, the, the long-term vision, they knew that humans are not going to do well in space for various reasons for because it's so dangerous. It's, we're just simply not primed to live in that environment. So they knew from day one of the space program, almost quite literally. And the whole famous Kleins and Klein um, project was to think about how can we modify humans? How can we cyberize humans such that they can live in space? That's the origin of the term. That's the origin of the field. So the idea, again, of humans in space, facile, not going to happen. All right. I'm glad I got that off my chest. Okay. Because, you know, you feel after you do, you know, an interview like that or a panel and at the end of it, you're like, ah, oh, damn, I didn't get a chance to say this. I didn't get a chance to say that. And I wish I, it gives me more opportunity to do a rebuttal. And uh, that's why it's great to have your own podcast, because then you can get things off your chest and, and express, you know, everything that you wanted to because you didn't have the time during during the panel discussion. And on that note, on that happy note, if you will, I will uh, close this podcast again. I'm George Dvorsky, blogger at Sentient Developments and chair at the board of the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. If you want to get in touch with me about any of this, go right ahead, george at sentientdevelopments.com. And um, thank you, all of you, for being regular listeners. And if it's your first time, welcome on board. Hope you'll be a regular listener to the podcast. I tend to put these out every week. I've been pretty good about doing that. And uh, I think it's a schedule that I can keep right now. Thank you once again for tuning into this week's episode of the Sentient Developments Podcast. Have yourselves an amazing and productive week, and I'll catch you around next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Sentient Developments. Goodbye.